You're listening to episode 12 of Justice, Mercy, Faith, a podcast from The Christian Citizen. In this episode, enjoy Christian Citizen contributors, the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, who on the one-year anniversary of the U.S. Embassy's move to Jerusalem, reminds us, blessed are the peacemakers, but asks, what about the troublemakers? The Reverend Dr. Corey Fields returns with his essay, Like a Parent, thinking critically about anti-Semitism and Israel today. And the Reverend John Zering is back with his piece, Let Ruin Come on Them for Their Mean Behavior. The Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon is the Executive Director of Churches for Middle East Peace and an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church. She is the editor of A Land Full of God, Christian Perspectives on the Holy Land, and author of Social Justice Handbook, Small Steps for a Better World, as well as other books and publications. She joins us this week with her piece, Blessed Are the Peacemakers, But What About the Troublemakers? May 14th, 2019 marks one year since the U.S. Embassy moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, five months after President Trump announced the move December 6th. What has the U.S. done about peace since then? President Trump said that since he thought the embassy move to Jerusalem was good for Israelis, he would next do something good for Palestinians. It's a bit hard to understand his definition of good for the Palestinians. Since the move, his actions have been more about troublemaking than peacemaking. He has cut over $200 million in 2017 economic support funds to the West Bank and Gaza. Frozen, then eliminated, U.S. government aid to UNRWA schools, clinics, and food distribution across the Middle East. Taken away the $25 million of already pledged and budgeted U.S. government grants to hospitals in Jerusalem, both Christian and secular. Removed the entire $10 million of U.S. aid funding for conflict management and mitigation programs, bringing together Israelis and Palestinians such as Kids for Peace, closed the Palestinian representative office in Washington, cut back and then ended U.S. funds for U.S. aid projects in the West Bank and Gaza, announcing that most of the local U.S. aid staff working in the West Bank and Gaza mission would be laid off by July 2019, closed the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem that provided consular services to the Palestinians, including those who are U.S. citizens, and political contacts within the Palestinian Authority. Removed Occupied from the State Department Human Rights Report concerning Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights, while doing nothing to remove the occupation, a total change from decades of State Department human rights reports. Recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, effectively ended U.S. assistance to the Palestinian Authority's anti-terrorism efforts with Israel, by championing and then signing the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act. Rather hard to see the good. President Trump said the embassy move would benefit Israel, but even that good is a bit hard to see in hindsight. Since the embassy moved to Jerusalem, violence and tension in the holy city have continually risen. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu lauded President Trump as the new Cyrus, referring to the Persian king who returned Israel to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. But Israelis were shocked when Trump later announced that he would withdraw U.S. troops from Syria, leaving it to the Persians. What next? 
If President Trump meant that the embassy move was a boon for Israel, but that this deal proposal would be a boon for Palestinians, we as Americans need to think about what sort of boon it should be. First, as a Christian pastor and as the leader of Churches for Middle East Peace, let me say that the deal proposal must benefit both Palestinians and Israelis. It must be a viable solution for both. It must end the occupation and the blockade, provide durable security for all, and ensure contiguity for Palestinian areas in the West Bank to make it a durable political and economic solution that decreases rather than increases terrorism. It must be a road to peace, not to further trouble. It must be a solution for both. Perhaps nothing can correct all of the injustices to both sides of the past 90 plus years of fighting, but it can and must provide a just order for the future. It must also reverse injustices that continue to affect the future, such as the illegal land expropriations. And it must eliminate continuing sources of injustice, inter alia, by returning prisoners to the control of their own side, accounting for the missing, and finding a way into the future for the refugees outside of Israel and Palestine. It must provide for the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan on both sides. And it must be a solution that can be negotiated by both on an equal footing. The deal must be viable, just, and negotiated because the Trump administration is presenting this deal on behalf of all Americans, not just himself, not just the coterie of settlement proponents he assembled to create the proposal, and not just his party's political interests inside the United States. On behalf of all of us. The Reverend Dr. Corey Fields is Senior Pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Newark, Delaware. He returns to the podcast with his essay, Like a Parent, Thinking Critically About Anti-Semitism and Israel Today. When you're a parent, your children are yours and nothing can change that. For their sake, you will drive them all over the place, care for them when they're sick, and most of all, you will do everything you can to protect them from harm. At the same time, responsible parents are also just as quick to correct and discipline their children for misbehavior. I'm a father of two, and I often feel that I am simultaneously my children's biggest supporter and their harshest critic. I vacillate back and forth between those roles. I have a special bond with them, and I favor them, but that does not mean that they will not be rebuked when they forget what I have taught them. This is a fair way to think about God's relationship with Israel throughout the biblical narrative. The theme of divine favor for these people is prominent in the biblical text. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 4. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? That's Isaiah 49, 15. But interspersed among these affirmations are harsh words of warning and judgment for Israel's behavior. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. That's Hosea 11, 
verses 7 and 12. In Jeremiah 18, following the famous potter's hands verses, the prophet declares that God reserves the right both to relent of judgment if a nation repents, as well as reconsider blessing if the nation does evil. This is, by the way, the original context for what it meant for the house of Israel to be, quote, like clay in the hand of the potter. As with other biblical prophets, Jeremiah makes it clear that God's chosen people were not immune from judgment and arguably that they are held to an even higher standard because of the covenant relationship. The prophets did not hesitate to call out God's people, certainly for idolatry, but also often for their unjust treatment of the vulnerable among them. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. That's Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Jesus, a Jew himself who lived primarily among the Jews, pretty clearly rejects the notion of favor based on identity. His commentary to this effect in the synagogue nearly gets him run off a cliff. That's in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And he says to a group of Jewish leaders, Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. That's Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. But there's no doubt that these people groups and their descendants have spent a significant portion of their existence as an oppressed or subjugated minority, including during the Babylonian Empire of the 6th century BCE, the Roman Empire that was in place during Jesus' life, and at certain points during the Middle Ages. In modern times, the ineffable horror of the Holocaust still looms large, despite the inconceivable persistence of deniers. When God's people are the oppressed and the victims, or the ones deserving of comfort and rescue, the declarations are just as sweeping and definitive. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. From Isaiah chapter 51, verse 3. There is wisdom to glean from these things as we try to responsibly discuss Jews today, anti-Semitism, and the state of Israel. These issues are paralyzingly complex, and the modern nation-state of Israel is a totally different reality than the people of the Bible. But that is all the more reason to treat these discussions with far more nuance than they are getting. Anti-Semitism is real and serious. But it is not anti-Semitic to criticize injustices perpetrated by the state of Israel and its supporters. I, like many others, am alarmed by the rise of anti-Semitism and neo-Nazi hate groups. Almost exactly two years ago, I was attending a rally at a nearby synagogue in solidarity with them after they had received threats. The shooting at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue in October is a recent and horrific example of this inexplicable hatred towards Jews. The underlying sentiments are nothing new. Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine tells of her first experience with this at the age of seven when another child looked at her and said, You killed our Lord. This serves as a reminder that even verses of the New Testament combined with careless interpretation have long served anti-Semitic purposes. 
Today's Jews still find themselves feeling vulnerable and threatened. They are a small minority in every country of the world but one. The one country where they are a majority is surrounded geographically by non-democratic states with troublesome leaders, nuclear weapons, and sentiments that the state of Israel should not exist. Organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah, whose leaders and documents wish harm on Jewish people, not just retaliation against the state, cannot be ignored. As Leroy Seat wrote in an Ethics Daily column, anti-Semitism cannot be condoned no matter when or by whom it is expressed. But, he said, neither can charges of anti-Semitism be used as a means to stifle legitimate criticism of the nation of Israel. In light of Jesus' teachings and the consistent biblical witness for justice and honesty, it is unfortunate that so many Christians have accepted a Zionist posture that reverts to the idea of rights based on ethnicity and give a pass on brutality and corruption when it is committed by the majority Jewish nation. Surely we can find a way to work for any needed defense of Israel and fight against anti-Semitism without excusing wrongdoing. There is no doubt sin and loss of life on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Between January of 2009 and March of 2019, attacks and indiscriminate rocket launches by Palestinians killed at least 91 Israeli civilians, according to the Israeli organization B'Tselem. However, the Palestinian people, often conflated with groups like Hamas, have seen disproportionate numbers of civilian casualties. But Salem reports that over the same time period, Israeli troops killed 3,445 Palestinian civilians. Israel has defended attacks on hospitals and schools by saying that combatants were in the area, but even if true, it would still be a violation of the Geneva Convention to fire on such a structure. Palestinians have seen systemic oppression and do not have self-determination. According to Human Rights Watch, the restriction of movement in and out of the Gaza Strip has forced 70% of its inhabitants to rely on humanitarian aid. And in the midst of continuing settlement construction in the West Bank, Palestinian homes are routinely bulldozed for not having a permit, even though Israeli policies make one nearly impossible for them to obtain. Some of these policies bear eerie similarities to what was done to people of color in South Africa's apartheid. Although perhaps there's some merit to the criticism that Representative Ilan Omar's infamous statement slipped into anti-Semitic stereotypes, it is not out of line to critically examine the increasingly well-funded lobbying of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, the Israeli-American Council, or the symbiotic relationship that IAC funder Sheldon Adelson has with Donald Trump. Few things arouse God's anger more in the biblical text than when Israel formed unholy alliances and became corrupted by other influences. Furthermore, God does not bless a people so that they can prosper while others suffer. As it suggests in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God blesses so that we may be a blessing. Scripture says on several occasions that God shows no partiality. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Romans chapter 2, verse 11, and Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. 
And we must bring to these issues the biblical witness of God's higher expectations for his people. See Isaiah chapter 61, verses 8 and 9. And God's concern for the vulnerable, whomever that may be in any given place or time. The Reverend John Zering has served United Church of Christ congregations for 22 years as a pastor in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Maine. He is the author of more than 30 books. His most recent is Get Your Church Ready to Grow, a guide to building attendance and participation, and is available from judsonpress.com. He returns to the podcast this week with his essay, Let Ruin Come on Them for Their Mean Behavior. Think about a national leader who lies, who is nasty, and who seems to be on the wrong side of every good and just issue. Or think about someone who has been mean to you, someone whose unkindness makes your teeth grit and your face turn red just to hear his or her name. Wouldn't it be fitting if misfortune came their way? As Psalm 35 verse 8 says, Let ruin come on them unawares, and let the net that they hid ensnare them. Let them fall into it to their ruin. Let them have a taste of their own medicine. Maybe that would teach them a lesson. That wish, of course, is not godlike. It may even be a sin. If it is, it is humankind's favorite sin. There is a word for it in German, Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is delight in another person's misfortune. The malicious enjoyment at the misfortune of others or finding joy in other people's misery. It is that feeling that we hope they fall flat on their face. May they get what's coming to them. When someone has insulted you, made you look stupid, has led you to feel devalued or has betrayed you, you do not exactly feel like telling them to have a nice day. In fact, if justice were to be fulfilled, you hope they would get back some of what they gave, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Schadenfreude wishes bad things to happen to those who have been mean, unfriendly, who have gossiped, spread rumors, or spoken lowly of another. Ah, jeers Schadenfreude, they got what they deserved. The whole of Psalm 35 is a glaring example of Schadenfreude. The psalmist wishes ruin for his enemies. He wants bad things to happen to them. He is human. The psalmist's wish for ruin upon those whom he dislikes sounds similar to feelings which creep into your mind or mine from time to time. We can get so upset about those whose behavior is adversarial that we wish for them nothing but the worst. May bad things secretly happen to them, we wish. Schadenfreude, cathartic as it feels, stands in contrast to the way Jesus taught about love and forgiveness. Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is the way of Jesus, to truly desire that which is in the highest and best interest of all, extended even to people you like the least. Matthew 5, verse 44, does not actually say that you have to like your enemies, invite them out to lunch, feel warm affection for them, 
enjoy being in their company, condone their behavior, or add them to your Facebook page. In the fewest possible words, it simply says to love them. Loving our enemies does not come naturally. To follow this teaching will require a change of the heart and a determination of the will to wish for enemies that which is in their highest and best interest. Pray for those who persecute you. Who would ever be inclined to pray for an enemy except the person who loves God and desires to obey Jesus' commandments? To pray for the highest and best interest of an enemy is a high expression of love. This shows a love which flows out of the person praying because of the love flowing into them from God. It is hard to hate a person when you are praying for them. The word pray for, which Jesus used, is a translation from the Greek word eulogia, which means to speak well of. Jesus is asking his followers to speak well of their enemies. That's where the word eulogize comes from. Like when a person is eulogized at his or her funeral, he or she is spoken well of. When I think about people who have been mean or unkind, I'm inclined to curse them. But Jesus calls me to speak well of them. When I wish for bad to happen to them, the one I follow asks me to extend love, grace, and forgiveness. Love is kind. Love is not resentful. The power of love is greater than the need for schadenfreude. Paul taught, the Apostle Paul taught, to rejoice in the right, to leave vengeance to God, to feed and give nourishment to your enemies, and to overcome evil with good. Jesus taught to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek, to walk the second mile, to not resist an evildoer, and to speak well of those who persecute you. I can understand that when the call to overcome evil with good is about people who have been mean, well, I can understand that, although in practice it is a soul-wrenching endeavor. But how does that apply on a national level? There are some in the leadership of our nation who I think are doing so much harm and whose behavior seems so unlike the heart of God that I wonder how could anyone not crave their demise? Would not their ruination be preferable to the ruining of thousands, if not millions, of citizens? I am inclined to grant myself permission to engage in Schadenfreude for them. But then, my spiritual autopilot kicks in and directs me to love my enemies and to pray for those who persecute. Love the person, hate the evil they do. I suspect that Schadenfreude is the opposite of agape. Agape, the Bible's word for love, is the godlike wish and hope that what is best for the other is what happens. This is the way of God. It's not the world's way. It is not the way of aggressively ambitious nations. And interestingly, the ones whose behavior I disdain are adored by some of my neighbors, fellow church members, and even family members. For leaders who do evil, or for people who are mean, we cannot pray, like the psalmist, to let ruin come on them unawares. Rather, we are best served to pray for good to triumph over evil, and for God to give us strength to overcome evil with good. That seems to be the right pathway to usher in the kingdom of God. 
That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's contributors, the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, the Reverend Dr. Corey Fields, and the Reverend John Zering. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen Editorial Board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Sarah Strosel Keiki, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkuff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit the website christiancitizen.us. We'll be back with a new episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith on May 21st. Thanks for listening.